0: Hello, and welcome to a very special 100th episode of the Biotech 2050 podcast. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, one of the co-founders of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora, where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise to help bring new therapies to patients faster.
1: And I'm today's other co-host, Alok Thayi. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vibe Bio, and Vibe partners with patient communities to develop novel therapeutics. Before we get into the 100th episode, we wanted to sincerely thank
0: our listeners and the wonderful community that has supported us over the last 99 episodes spanning two and a half years. When Anlok and I first started this podcast, our intent was to increase knowledge sharing and provide a medium through which some of the best leaders in our industry could distill down a few poignant lessons that they have learned along the way. We hope that the stories of our guests have been educational to those currently in the industry emboldened aspiring entrepreneurs to pursue their passions and perhaps even encourage professionals from other industries to explore opportunities in the life sciences sector. We also wanted to give a very big shout out to our team behind the scenes who make this all possible. Marissa Masek, James Allgood, Jay Valencia, and Megan Lovering. Today, we have four wonderful guests with diverse backgrounds with whom we'll be discussing their entrepreneurial journey, advice for first-time founders. And of course, the exciting innovation happening at each of their respective companies. Due to conflicting schedules and recording in a COVID world, this podcast was recorded remotely during two separate sessions. So please excuse any bumpiness and transitions as you listen. During the first part of this recording, we're very excited to welcome Lex Rovner, co-founder and CEO of 64 x Bio, and Jake B. Craft, co-founder and CEO of Strand Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So Lex, to kick us off, please walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure. I'm Lex. I'm the CEO and co-founder of 64X. I did my graduate work with Farron Isaacs at Yale University in synthetic biology, where I met George Church originally and collaborated with him on a few projects and then ultimately decided I wanted to start a company and thought that George would be a great mentor for myself in that journey and decided to do a postdoc with him at Harvard in the East. And ultimately we ended up co-founding a company alongside Pam Silver, Jeff Way, David Thompson. And we spun out the company in 2018. We went through Y Combinator actually. And some of our investors from our seed round, which followed after YC included, you know, first round refactor 50 years. And we've since raised our series A just at the end of the last year, and it was led by Life Force Capital, North Pond, and Future Ventures also participated significantly as well as our you know, existing seed investors. And so in terms of just what we're doing at the company, um, <laughs> so there are a lot of therapies like gene therapy that require viral vector material to deliver you know genetic information to cells. And so viral vectors are typically manufactured in mammalian cell lines, and this process isn't very efficient we're using basically high throughput genome engineering technologies to generate better cell lines for this problem. And ultimately our goal is just to enable basically all of these companies, you know, pharmaceutical or biotech companies to bring more of these therapies to patients. And so we're also going through a big hiring sprint at the moment. So if you're interested, check out our website and, and Twitter page for sure. So, Awesome. Thanks, Lex. And
0: Jake, over to you. Same question, please.
3: Hi, great to be here, you guys. Thanks for having us. My name is Jake Becraft. I co-founded Strand Therapeutics a number of years ago and now serve as the CEO of the company. We are a next generation messenger RNA therapeutics company. Our focus, our mandate, our mission is really to build technologies on top of the molecule of messenger RNA that enable mRNA therapeutics to be utilized beyond vaccines. So we want to be able to actually take messenger RNAs and apply them in diseases such as cancer, immunotherapies, immunology, rare diseases, et cetera. I do that by applying synthetic biology over the top of messenger RNA, so things like gene circuits that can allow us to create you know, cell-type specific messenger RNA molecules that can you know, enter a variety of different tissues and only activate or express their you know, encoded cargo in certain tissues. My journey really is pretty similar to Lex's actually. I went to MIT and did my PhD with Ron Weiss, who's the director of the MIT Synthetic Biology Center. Really there, I met my co-founder, who was a postdoc in that lab, Tsuku Katata. We were really focused. We were looking circa 2012, 2013 at this new field of messenger RNA therapeutics. So Moderna was actually in our building, 500 Tech Square in Kendall Square. We were seeing this growing space that people were working on to say, you know, messenger RNAs can be scalable, they can be delivered. But we sort of saw this limitation that I think the field is now coming to terms with, which is that, you know, the first generation modified RNA therapeutics are inherently limited. They're very well equipped to handle the needs of vaccination. But when we get into therapeutics, new technologies need to be overlaid on top of what's already been learned. So we started building that at the Weiss Lab at MIT. We were pretty successful in a lot of that technology. And then About three and a half years ago, Tesuko and I took the technology, spun it out into a company. We're now around 62 people at the company. We've raised a Series A uh, a little bit less than a year ago. And we are also still rapidly hiring right now in the cities of both Cambridge, Boston, and Watertown. But starting this summer, we will be just in the uh, Fenway neighborhood for the most part when we get our new headquarters set up and running.
1: Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like you both have accomplished quite a lot in a fairly short period of time and been a really great example of what founder-led biotechs could become. We'd love to see if we can dig in a little bit more into that experience, especially as it comes to financing and the transition from academia into a startup specifically. We'd love to hear more about that.
3: Yeah. So I'm happy to jump in there. So there's definitely a bigger push and a lot more conversation around founder-led biotech. Uh, maybe I'll take you know a half a second to describe exactly what that means to me, not that I'm a, an authority on the subject, but, you know, as someone who is definitely opinionated on it, you know, to me, it's really about, you know, founders can come from any background, right? This isn't saying, you know, only PhD students, only postdoc students should be able to start biotech companies either. It's not really saying that there should be any constraints on it. It's really advocating for a model for startup companies that I think is overlooked or definitely underrepresented in the biotech sector, which is... Can we utilize, can we have um, people who have a particular background, particular outlook and a lens and a mission and a vision step in and lead in a full-time or, you know, when you're a founder, you know, it's much more than full-time capacity, the mission, execution and vision of a company in the trenches, building the company day to day. You know, there's not someone who's stepping in a day a week to sort of set some goals and then coming back to see how everyone did at the company. You know, that's definitely a model that's also brought technologies forward. I think there's no reason that it can't continue to be um, successful. However, I I like the idea that we're building more founder communities. We're building better ecosystems, right? The founder-led biotech sort of movement, the founders are all sorts of people. They are people with 20 years, 10 years experience in biotech. There are people coming out of their PhDs and postdocs. They're people who aren't from the biotech background. Maybe they have a different slant in what they've been able to, you know, achieve in the past. And so that, to me, I think is super powerful. And for me, it's something that's uh, I've really got to see the community grow over the past few years as more companies have gotten founded and started, and as you know, some founder-led companies have certainly grown grown both in, in stature, size, and financing, that has, I think, also sort of served as a, a feedback loop to power the sort of outlook and increase the amount of funding that's coming into the space, right?
0: Yeah, totally agree. And Lex, I'm curious, given that you went through YC, and, and we're all very familiar with YC from the tech space, how did YC help you make that transition a little bit smoother in terms of being a, a founder at a, at a biotech company?
2: Yeah. YC has a saying that is, I believe it's make something people want. And I just think that it goes so much deeper than it sounds. It was very helpful in my transition from academia to industry. So, you know, I think as a scientist, you're sort of taught to think about really hard problems and it can be tempting to sort of develop a really cool technology in the lab and then spin that out into a company and just assume that people will use it and you'll find them. I think that's one of the dangerous, most dangerous things that you can do as a founder. And rather, you know, you should be thinking about this as, let's find what the really big problems are in biotech, and then let's invent solutions around them. But that can be pretty counterintuitive to think that way as a scientist, because as a scientist, that's just not how you're trained to think. And I think that going through Y Combinator was really helpful for that because they really emphasize you know doing a lot of market research so i talked to you know sort of 800 plus touch points with potential customers in in the industry before even starting the company or raising money and i think that was really helpful for us i think that that can in in a way sort of give founder led biotech a bad name because there are a lot of cases where founders don't go through that stage and end up running a company that's more or less very academic and i think that if you can surround yourself with the right people that have actually built companies before, biotechs, and you're, and you're humble enough to be able to ask questions all the time, (laughs) to be able to understand things like this and that, that you have to go and talk to customers before you start something, then I think that can be helpful. And it was helpful for me.
0: Yeah. That's great advice where that's generally the advice that's given to tech founders, but all too often we don't hear that enough on the biotech side. As you think about, you know, how you do surround yourself with the right people in the very early stages of the company, you know, let's say where you don't have the brand recognition and you know, think like a couple of rounds ago. How did you go about finding those people and engaging with them?
3: So I can take that. I mean, it's it's really about a relentless pursuit while being humble to what you don't know. I think Lex just nailed a point that I really stress to founders when I do speak to them about these topics, right? You know, the model for founder-led biotech is not that, you know, if you have zero experience, you can run out and start a biotech company tomorrow but it's really that you know if you have someone who has a unique lens who you think can be a, a great leader and you set them up and surround them with mentorship and people who have been there before who can answer questions who can you know pull in different contacts who can offer you know I- advice or tell them when they think one idea is not the best that actually is how you provide and and fundamentally build something that that is different that is innovative that takes actually leaps forward instead of incremental steps and so you know, for any founder who is getting into the space, I think they need to be ready to be, I mean, the the job itself will humble you, you know, you'll be told no, you'll be told you're stupid, you'll be told all sorts of things. Um, and if you're not, wow, you're really amazing, because I don't think I'm amazing. And I've definitely been told that a lot. I think that, you know, you have to be ridiculously humble and sort of constantly be asking other people, even if you think you know something to be definitely checking on yourself, finding experienced folks, finding, you know, as a founder, finding a personal board of advisors, right? A personal advisory board. I have, you know, a number of people, some people who are at our stage, even like fellow CEOs who are at the same stage. Some people who are a few years in the future that I can ask questions to people who have done, you know, companies multiple times, having all of those people. And, The way to do that is to reach out and ask and to do what, um, you know, when we started, I called it network crawling, which was talk to someone and then, you know, end the conversation with, are there other people you think I should talk to? And I encourage people when they talk to me to do that. I mean, I actually, I I send a number of people to go talk to Lex, actually, after I talk to them, you know, just to, (laughs) in terms of their network crawl in the opposite direction. So it's an incredibly important skill to have and develop if you're going to be a successful founder.
2: Yeah. I'll echo that. I definitely think that what you said around being brave enough to be humble is so important. Just because you hear, like, even just this thought of asking for help is so daunting to people. I think sometimes because they're going to look weak or they're seeing that as they've failed in some way. I think the soonest, the sooner you can get over being afraid of hearing no or being afraid of of rejection in some way, the easier this will become. Just because you you get it from so many angles fundraising, recruiting, sales, you'd need to be, (laughs) you have a really thick skin, I guess. For sure.
1: Well, you know, I think one of the facets of it that is particularly daunting, especially when you're coming out of academia is the fundraising facet, right? Given how critical it is to your organization. We'd love to just maybe hear a little bit about some of the learnings along the way from maybe when you were trying to raise your first round versus your more recent successful larger rounds, uh, series A's and et cetera. Any advice or any sort of journey you could sort of share between those rounds and, and what you sort of learned and how you do it differently?
2: Yeah. Okay. I can share a little bit. And then I, I definitely want to hear, hear Jake's response to this. Um, yeah. When we raised our seed, it was pretty comical, honestly. Like looking back, it was pretty painful to even think about. I definitely think I had a more academic pitch deck in that, you know, there was a lot of sort of real complicated science up front that no one could understand, essentially. What ended up happening was that people were passing because they couldn't even understand that this was a problem worth investing in. It wasn't necessarily they didn't believe in the technology or the approach or anything like that. They just couldn't even get bought into the vision. So at a certain point, I heard no so many times that I was, in, I think, pitching in an Uber on the way to a pitch, and this guy said, you know, I, I could just tell that he wasn't, he he wasn't going to move forward, and and I and I finally was just like, okay, can you share, you know, why? maybe some feedback on on what I could be doing better. And he said, uh, well, you know, I don't understand what you're doing. I can't even understand that this is a problem worth solving to make me want to invest the time in understanding what you're doing. That was mind blowing for me. And I pretty much just moved all of the sort of like, you know, world changing, like this is going to solve world peace if we're successful. Like all of these sort of like big picture vision slides to the front, shoved all the technology to the end. And I went into that next pitch with that deck and that ended up being our lead investor. So that's how I've been approaching it since for our series a, you know, I try to keep it real focused on like the problem, the vision, why are we doing this? And then real little bits of information at a time. And then, you know, only when someone is asking for, you know, something else, do I sort of provide more detail so that you don't overwhelm people with just a lot of unnecessary information.
3: Having started a company based on my PhD work that I had been working on for five or six years. The use case and sort of the, the revolutionary potential of what we were doing seemed ridiculously obvious to me. And I went into pitch meetings early on, essentially with a science presentation, with, a, with basically a version of my PhD thesis, that I then would go, look at this shit, isn't this cool? Like, I mean, isn't it obvious what this can do? Like, what if mRNAs could be programmed to go into certain cells and only express there? And people were just like, what the, what the hell is going on? It was this like 27 year old kid just going on about like messenger RNA and, you know, all of these different things? And it was ridiculously unsuccessful. We didn't know what we were even raising correctly. We didn't know the correct way to approach investors. We hadn't had any real mentorship from anyone who had done it. Because at the time when we were doing this, I didn't know Lex, we were probably doing it about the same time. And besides Jason Kelly at Ginkgo, I knew all of one person closer in my age who had recently done it in terms of coming out of academia and starting a biotech company. And that was Alec Nielsen at Asimov. And you know, he was really the only person I could ask for help from. And he had a particular experience that didn't necessarily match mine. And I struggled with it quite a bit. We didn't get funding for over a year of pitching. We got deep into some investors were able to see past my awful pitch and to the potential of the technology and some dug in and ultimately we weren't successful there. And I think what I came to realize is exactly what Lex said, which is it's about the problem. And I think the way I boil that down now is all of these companies, the technology is fairly complex, right? And if you put yourself in the investor's shoes, if you take some you know, empathy for the investor right? and you think about the fact that they are looking at a million pitches a day, tons of different people are coming to them, you have to make them care enough to figure out what you're doing, right? They, they're going to have to sit for 40 minutes and actively think about the technology, about how it works. And so that's why you know, I tell people all the time when I see their seed stage deck who are scientists, who are technologists. I say, you know, like less data, less data in the deck. There is plenty of time to tell someone about the data. There's plenty of time to dig in. Don't have a deck that's all fluff that's going to make someone think like, this person's kind of full of shit. But like have a deck that really explains why this is a big deal. Because at the end of the day, like you're building a business. You're not building a science project. And interesting science, if you want to do interesting science, that's fine. There are places to do that. There are even more places now than there were five years ago because of all these great new research forward organizations and focused research organizations. But a startup is a business and it needs to explain why what you're solving is a fundamental problem that will solve a number of issues, especially if you're going to go for like the sorts of people who support founder-led biotech, who are also people who are looking for outsized returns with companies that have very ambitious leap forward, not incremental step forward plans. And so our first round of financing was very tough. And then eventually we found, you know, I don't think I fixed the deck actually. Like like Lex said, I I found an investor in Playground Global who led our seed round um, at Jory Bell and Victoria Sun there who were able to see through the technology to see the potential in me and my co-founder and to support us and to build an ecosystem and infrastructure around us, as well as provide us with capital, which really was an accelerant on everything. And so, you know, I I don't recommend people go out there and hope that they find their own playground, right? It's much better to think about how to build decks that are compelling that, you know, otherwise I'm sure 90% of the people we talked to couldn't tell you what we even did because we didn't tell them what we did. We didn't educate them because by the time they got through the first six data slides, they were just like, I don't care. I mean, why would, like, why would you, you see amazing things all day if you're a VC. So make someone care about the problem. And then- Tell them why your solution will work and then tell them why you are the person to do it. Boil it down to answering two questions, which is, do I believe this is the solution to the problem? Do I believe these are the people to solve that solution? If they answer yes to both those, then there's a good chance that they might invest.
1: Obviously, really important feedback, especially when you're coming out of an academic environment where it's all about the data and the science and the novelty. I'm kind of curious, like since you both have interacted with and raised capital from both traditionally tech and traditionally biotech investors. I'm kind of curious if you've found that the persona of the investor, how that impacts your fundraise process in that in tech, you meet a lot of venture capitalists who used to be operators, right? They were founders themselves. While in biotech, you see a little bit more folks who come from perhaps the financial side of the industry, as opposed to say someone who used to run Clindev at a company. Just curious to see if that resonates with your experience as well as like how you approach the, the conversations as a result.
3: I have advocated to whatever level that I think that biotech needs more operators in venture. Maybe you have seen that. Sometimes I feel like I say things publicly, maybe on Twitter or somewhere that I don't think should be controversial that really make people upset. And I try never to say like, the way it is sucks. It's just the way it is is unbalanced. I would like other options. I would like more diversity here, diversity in backgrounds, diversity in experiences. Can we get there maybe? That seems to really make people upset who who think that I'm saying that they should. I, I don't know what they think, but I will say that it does affect the way that you pitch. But, you know, there's a lot of great capital out there. There's a lot of great investors. We have wonderful investors who, you know, some funds that are you know straight financial, no operating experience, come up through the finance world they're fantastic investors. We have people who have been founders and they are fantastic investors. There's no way to be a fantastic investor. I would love to see more founders, more operators, more people who have been in biotech startups in biotech specific investing, especially early stage venture. Early stage, seed A, B round. People really should, I think, Not everyone needs to, but there should be a higher percentage of those people who have really been in a company full-time, in the trenches, kind of do-or-die mentality and can help you build from there. You know, I, I don't know if it changes the way that I approach the meetings. I sort of approach the meetings with the same thing, which is this is the mission. It's important. We have made progress in getting there. We have a lot more to do. This is going to be a revolutionary step forward in technology. If we are successful, you know, come along and help us build it. Whether that resonates with people might be different if they've been operational or finance, but we've successfully raised from both with the same message.
0: Yeah, this is a really compelling advice and I want to to make sure our listeners digest it. You know, we often hear founders walk out of a meeting and I'm saying this because I think between us four, we should just do a count of how many times we've been rejected when we've been fundraising, by the way. We often hear founders just reduce feedback from a VC down to the VC didn't get it or multiple, you know, hundreds of VCs didn't get it. And it is the job of a founder to make sure that people get it. Both of you really great advice there. Quite honestly, it took me a long time to get that too, right? I, I think it's, it's also important to note that like, if you look back at your first pitch deck and it isn't crappy and you've waited too long. So we all have like really awful pitch decks that, that embarrass us now.
3: I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Definitely>. <laughs> so you both did your PhDs on the East coast and Jake, you're still here, and Lex, you're not on the West Coast. Lex, over to you first. I'm curious to hear your opinion on the evolving biotech ecosystems across both coasts and how they differ, and, and what you've seen on the West Coast.
2: Yeah, I think in terms of ecosystems, oh, I'm, I'm hesitant to say this. Like, <laughs> I guess this is like the scientist in me, but like, I, I'm like hesitant to say this in, abs- in an absolute sense. But it definitely seems like there's more founder-led companies out here. That seems to be. A more accepted model. There's a lot of biotech on both coasts, but I definitely think that Boston still has San Francisco beat. And maybe it's just not as common for biotech companies to be founder led. And maybe that's why I'm seeing that. But either way, I've definitely noticed some differences. And then I think I'm also really generalizing here and saying this, but obviously, like the investor ecosystem is a little different. And there's different models and there's pros and cons to each of them. And I definitely think ultimately at the end of the day, You know, it's good to have a mix of different perspectives. I wouldn't advocate for having just, you know, an investor syndicate that's just entirely from tech, but I think diversity matters. That's what I'll say sort of generally. I definitely
3: agree, right? And Lex, to build on what you said right there at the end, right? Diversity matters. Everywhere, you know, companies are seeing that diversity, gender, ethnic, you know, background, economic, diversity of backgrounds is diversity of thought and people have bought into that idea and i completely do believe it and i've seen it happen like within my company and i think that that diversity can even be expanded further to diversity of backgrounds, diversity of experience, right? What type of biotech will you build if you've never been in a biotech company before, but now you're in charge of leading it and building the culture. And there are things now that our company is is larger that we sit and talk with the management team and people go, I love how it's like this at this company. And my response is, I didn't know it shouldn't be that way. I didn't know that there shouldn't be like this, like radical transparency between departments. I didn't know that silos shouldn't be there. And it was definitely not something that we started with. The cultures between the the two coasts, there are definite themes, but there are definite, you know, investment firms across all stages on both coasts that I think are supportive of all sorts of different models. There is definitely like a old boys club of Boston biotech that has like yeah. certain members and has certain culture. But, you know, when I started Strand, I thought that both coasts had elements of philosophy that I thought were important in building a biotech company. And so we really wanted to bridge sort of those cultures. Actually, I thought that, you know, the West Coast had a lot of platform, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of founders, and a lot of this like, you know, giant leap forward mentality, whereas the East Coast had a lot of, you know, diligent step, bring drug forward sort of thoughts of, okay, now this is the next step, this is the next step. In my opinion, what I thought would be the most revolutionary is to bridge those two and have a company that could, you know, rapidly invest in a exciting, high potential moving platform while also diligently moving drugs forward. And so that's why, you know, from our very first round to today, we, you know, take investors that have mixed philosophies from both coasts, even from other places. And we sort of try to to put that all in a melting pot and make a, a company that's fundamentally different in operation as well as science.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Lex and Jake, for joining us today on our 100th episode. It was a treat. You guys, I'm sure, have shared a very small portion of all that you have learned along the way, but it was uh, tremendously compelling and I hope inspiring to those that are listening. Well,
2: thank you for having us here. Yeah, same. Thank you.
1: For the second part of this recording today, we're really excited to be joined by Nabiya Saklan, the CEO and co-founder of Salino, and Josh Mendelbrem, the CEO of Camp4 Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today. Would love it, maybe, if you can kick us off with a quick intro on yourselves, your background, and how you got to where you are today.
4: Hi, so excited to be here and happy to share a little bit more about my story. My story begins in physics. So I'm a physicist by training. I did my PhD at Harvard. And it was an interesting time because I got very passionate about biology and building new tools for biologists. That was my life's mission and life's calling. I never imagined I would become an entrepreneur. Here we are. That happens in Cambridge, Boston sometimes because it's such a vibrant community. And I had the opportunity to collaborate with some brilliant biologists. So George Church, Derek Rossi, David Scadden, and they were very excited about this novel laser-based cell engineering technique that I was working on and developing. And that's how the startup idea came into being. Finished on my PhD in 2017, launched the company. And we've been around for a couple of years, and today we're focusing on automating the generation of IPSCs and IPSC-based cell therapies, induced pluripotent stem cells. It's a very exciting space, and we're grateful to be able to build the infrastructure to support this industry from a manufacturing, logistics, QA, QC standpoint, and how do we automate a lot of manufacturing processes that have traditionally been very artisanal and manual, labor-intensive, expensive. So we bring everything into close manufacturing and use a machine learning-based approach to characterize the quality of cells using imaging data as the main input, imaging data of cells, and cells are very articulate in telling us what's going on with them based on their features. And then we apply laser engineering to remove unwanted cells, and doing that in a closed loop manner leads to massive scalability in the process.
5: Really impressive story. So um, just to echo, thanks for hosting as well and inviting me to join. My background is I come from a family of scientists, which I always like to start with. So mother, father, sister are all PhDs. Uh, I don't have a PhD, but science has always felt like a second language for me, which is kind of ironic for my story because I went to WashU and I basically did everything I could to not be in biology. You know, the whole uh, son wants to rebel against his parents. And I found that the only thing I was really good at was biology. And so that that was... What I did at WashU, an interesting way at the time, this was the early 2000s, there was no great biotech industry. There was the big behemoths, right? There was Amgen, there was Abbott, there was Baxter, there was Merck, there was GSK. But there wasn't the thriving biotech community. Actually, it's changed so much over the last two decades. Uh, in fact, the company at the time was Genentech and I'll come back to that. But I somehow found myself actually in the lab doing electrophysiology and high throughput screening for a startup company that had come out of Harvard and it was working on ion channels, trip channels and cardiac regeneration. So neat stuff. And after being there for about a year and a half, even though it was only a company of like 30 people, there was a CEO and a business development person and the investors were very closely involved. And I sort of fell in love with the idea of being at the intersection of science and business. Candidly, I didn't know anything about business. And so and I wasn't making any money, really, actually. So it was sort of an easy decision to go back to business school. So I I went back and I did that to get an MBA, not because actually I think that teaches you everything about finance, but it was just a way to, I think, shift over outside the lab and into a business role. And so I did that. And actually, interestingly, the one thing I had in mind when I went to school in Michigan was, well, I really want to be a genentech. That is the biotech company. You know, that's the legendary biotech company. Because remember at the time, you know, Biogenetic was kind of this weird place. Genzyme was sort of having its heyday around that time. Regeneron wasn't Regeneron yet. And, you know, Needless to say, Millennium was coming along, but there were just, it was an interesting time. And so I ended up at Genentech, but oddly enough, in a marketing role, which I didn't know much about, but that was the role they offered me for an internship. I didn't really love that. It was so far away from the science. I loved Genentech. I thought it was just like the greatest thing ever in terms of how many smart people were there and what they were doing and their mission. But the actual role is pretty far removed from what I wanted. And you know, I coming out of Michigan, I landed what was my dream job in business development at Genzyme. And Genzyme was this legendary company led by Henry Tremier. And You know, I think everybody has different points of views on this. And I, you know, from the outside looking in and from the inside looking out. The one thing I'll say is, is that the interesting part about Genzyme was Henry had an interest in all these different businesses. And if you really look at it, it was kind of different holdings, right? They had a diagnostics, and genetics, a cancer, a rare disease, and you know, of course, rare diseases are what they became known for, but they also had this incredible way of building the next generation of leaders. In fact, there was an article that came out a few years ago about the family tree of Genzyme. There's over 55 CEOs that have come out of Genzyme. Millennium I too, and genetic, but I think Genzyme kind of wins it on that one. It's pretty amazing because Henry was very much about sort of building leaders. And I thought that was pretty inspirational. I guess I had this Track record of bad things following me because when I was at Genentech, they got bought by Roche, and then I was at Genzyme and did this manufacturing staff, and they got bought by Sanofi, and that was interesting because I actually stayed there for a few years because I wanted to see what it would be like. You know, Genzyme was a ten thousand person company, Sanofi is a hundred thousand person company, and let's just put it this way: that after a couple of years at Sanofi, that was very clear it was time to move on. Things that moved the needle for them would be, you know, buying a twenty billion dollar company, not doing sort of a discovery stage deal, which is what I was more interested in, quite frankly, in terms of building things. So I left and I was choosing between venture capital and business development. And I kind of looked at it as, well, I did my PhD in business development at Genzyme, but I really didn't cut my teeth enough. So thought I needed to really go learn more and do more. And Biogen at the time, had George Shkangos, Doug Williams, Al Sandrock, Steve Holtzman. And I just thought that was really interesting you know, there is a difference between pharma and biotech in terms of the attitude and the culture so i went to biogen and i did business development there we did a whole range of things we did some cell therapy deals right back back before companies like Selina were around which i think kind of completely changed the way i thought about it but we did some great things and actually learned how to do bd and i met some incredible people actually the interesting thing about biogen was the average 10 years like three to five years whereas genzyme was like 20 years and so it's a very interesting thing but needless to say by the time I left, the best part about those things, aside from just a lot of mentorship, was the relationships that were built, which is I actually think one of the benefits of the bigger company. So that that is one plus. And then that led me to Camp Four. You know, Polaris had had just seated this company with Rick Young and Lenzon, who are just these incredible scientists and fun to work with. And really, it was a company that didn't know what it wanted to be when it grew up. It had amazing science. It was kind of a blank canvas, so it was sort of perfect for me. And they brought me in very very early on. And for the last five years, it's been a journey building that company, and we've taken it in different directions. And really, what we're focused on, on now is it's all about regulation of genes in a very specific way, which is, I think, a next generation problem. And I think we're going to see more of this. And we've been studying something called regulatory RNAs, which is a different part of the dark genome that people haven't paid as much attention to. But essentially, these are precise rheostats to regulate any gene in the body in a specific way. And so I like to think that we're using that area of biology because we're a biology first company. But by coupling that with nucleotides, we're opening the aperture for that technology and what people thought was possible, because now we can upregulate genes. And there's just literally a thousand diseases where if you could just increase the gene output, you could basically solve the difference between being sick and being relatively healthy. And so that kind of leads us to where we are today. And I've been doing that for the last five years, and it's been a very satisfying, I think, experience. Some highs, lots of lows, because that's kind of you know part of this business we're in, but really satisfying and very proud to be leading this company. well, you know obviously you both have sort of very different sort of
1: backgrounds, but obviously very promising sort of technologies and approaches for important sort of medical problems to come back to that approach of sort of business building and the journey for building a biotech we'd love to just hear a little bit about sort of either the founding story as well as how you've sort of built these organizations especially from say a financing perspective there's obviously a lot of talk on Twitter especially about sort of this pro and con between founder-led biotech versus sort of VC incubated biotech so we'd love to hear both your thoughts on that as well
5: So a couple thoughts, you know, for me, what's interesting is in a sense, you know, I have come to think of myself as a founder of Camp Ford in collaboration with both actually The founders, Lenzon and Rick Young, but also some of the venture capitalists. I I actually take a lot of inspiration and pride in how we work together as a team. And I think that's very important. That's just one thing I'll start with, actually. I don't agree with this dichotomy that sometimes, as you kind of alluded to, that plays out over Twitter of VCs, evil, founders, great. And, you know, there's certainly extremes on both ends of it. But anybody who thinks that, in my belief, that VCs are just only there to make money, you know, that, that may be true for some, but there are some that, Take great pride in the companies they've built and being part of it. You know, I'd say my venture capitalists have been true partners, actually. There's difficult moments, and we could talk about that more, but you know, they've stood by and we've worked through problems together. Camp 4 in specific, you know, it started as an idea that you can map out how cells make decisions at the transcriptional level. We're still doing that today, but you know, we've been very fluid and follow the biology and how we've evolved the company. You know, we started with thinking about could we sell data to companies? For example, if you wanted to know how your kinase inhibitor works, no small molecules are totally specific, right? They're pleiotropic, And we could actually show you all the different places the drug is working in a cell. And could that help you make a better drug or think about where to use that drug in other places? So it was a very good idea. Just the execution of, for various reasons, selling data to companies is a different type of business model. And that wasn't the soul of the company for what we were meant to do. So then we shifted to small molecules because we were using small molecules to make these transcriptional maps to activate the cells. And we just found that that wasn't specific enough or good enough for us. And then we sort of evolved the company again into regulatory RNAs based on Rick Young's work with people like Rupa and uh, Phil Sharp, and others. And that mixed with the fact that we had oligo expertise in these transcriptional maps, and we sort of very much found our soul over the last few years. And the data has been incredible. But through that whole journey, by the way, fundraising has been something, it's never come easy for us. When we were doing our Series A again, the world was doing, every conversation was, when are you going to go public? And we weren't ready for that, right? We, we were like, well, this is the company we're building and we're doing our Series A. I've almost run out of money five times, just to be clear. like I, I was five days from having my second child almost running out of money when Andreessen stepped in. The day after Christmas, and did a deal with Biogen that saved us for a year. Five, I and a North lit around. I was about a week from running out of money. So that's just kind of, the life we've lived in terms of how we've kept this company going. And in a weird way, it's become easier and more familiar over time. And so fundraising, we can go into more detail there, but you know, a lot of that is me not understanding the dynamics of fundraising as well and leverage and forcing functions. And I've sort of learned that over time. There's no real playbook on that. And a lot of it is just experience and learning how to tell your story and interact with investors too. A boot camp can't totally teach you that. So then the last point, sorry, I'm rambling a lot here, but you had asked about founder versus non-founder, really, it's simple in my view. You're either CEO or you're not, period. And when you're the CEO, you have a board, you have investors, and you have a job to do. And that job is setting the strategy, set the culture and hire the right people into it and raise money, raise money, raise money. And I just simply don't care whether or not you're the founder. You need to have a vision for the company and you need to command sort of your people and, and do all those things. And founders can be board members, they can be advisors, they can have roles other than CEO. That's all fantastic. When a founder steps up to be the CEO, I think that's also really great but that doesn't mean that you have a longer term view than a CEO in general. I can think of just as many examples of founders that wanted to sell their company in a couple of years. And that's fine too. It all just depends as the CEO, what you want to do with your company. And I think different people approach that in different ways. So for me, it's like, it's all good if VCs are starting it. It's all good if founders are starting it. To me, it all comes down to sort of you're either leading the company or you're not. And I I think that's really just my simple point of view on it. And there's just, I think, as many examples of each in terms of the amount of great companies that can be built.
4: So So much to unpack there, Josh. You know, Maybe a good place to start is reflecting on my own journey because I'm very much an accidental entrepreneur. I'm very much an accidental CEO. And nobody ever talked to me about how hard the CEO job is when I was put into this role. But it was uh, an interesting time for me. I was this very excited, recent PhD, very passionate about the technology. I could see many different applications for it. And it was interesting to see the people around me pointing out that one of the things that an early startup CEO has to do in this situation is to build a team. And being able to attract talent is huge. If you can't do that, then you should really, really not be CEO. (laughs) And the way I always thought about it was, okay, let me try to build a team. And, you know, started off in 2017, brought in my co-founder, Marina Madrid, who was my lab mate. So we just had a very natural organic relationship. So it was easy. And it was also so exciting that she said, yes, she could have said no. And she could have said, I'm going to go off and do my other life. But having that strong bond with her laid a really strong foundation to our culture, because we'd worked together for many years. And then the surprise element was Matthias Wagner, who's our other co-founder and he's he's our CTO. And we sat down in the second meeting and decided to do this together. And just a little bit more about Matthias, he's a serial entrepreneur. Celino is his fourth company. He's been CEO every other time. So when we were having that discussion, my assumption was he would be CEO. It made sense. And I would do the science. And Matthias pointed out, listen, you're doing a great job of bringing people together. And that's what you need to be doing. That's what we need in the early stage CEO. And I would love to do the science. That's how I got into this role. And uh, you know, I met the engine very early in my journey. Katie Ray and Andewitt, the engine is a venture fund that was initiated by MIT as a fund to invest in tough tech ventures and deep tech. And they had this really strong mandate around supporting scientists and inventors on our entrepreneurial journey. And I thought that was really interesting because they also saw something in me that said, you're going to be a great CEO. And I looked at Katie and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're clearly very experienced. So I'm happy to try. And I think that's a unique experience for me being the inventor of the technology and being here. And so far, so we know, you know, we've raised $96 million in venture capital funding from primarily tech funds out in California. And so brought in leaves by bear recently. And we also have a pretty large crossover gearing up for the next run. So I've had to learn everything on the job. And I think there were many instances every year I evaluate my own performance of how I'm doing. Okay. I need to build the initial team. I need to raise more money. I need to hire C-level executives. I need to bring in board members. And as the company grows, the complexity and the bar gets higher. And as a founder who's so invested in this technology translating to for patients, that's that's why I'm doing this. I'm never going to compromise on performance. So, you know, we always talk about that very openly like I always lead with that I should be CEO as long as I'm doing a good job and you know I think that's all of our fiduciary responsibilities to make sure we have the right team in place so I think my journey I've just been pleasantly surprised at my own ability to learn and grow into a very demanding role and I think last year was particularly interesting because I have a wonderful working relationship with coastal ventures Alex Morgan and Minode and they really made it a point to build the branding and public presence around Salino and. My role in the company, which was very uncomfortable for me being a scientist who would rather be in the background, but that led to a series of events that led to a very powerful series A for us, where we were upsized and oversub, And all of those words, which I didn't use any of the words in the press release because I think that's what happened last year. There was a lot of capital available given the market and just the push for biotech. So I thought that was really interesting. In summary, I think uh, it's important to be. Mindful of what the company needs and really being self aware of what you're interested in doing. What are your capabilities? Can you actually get the job done? And if you can't get the job done, I think it doesn't make sense to stay CEO. I don't think all founders should be CEOs. You know, what's amazing about Celino right now is we have been hiring some exceptional talent from industry across all of the levels. And it's an amazing experience to learn from pharma execs who have been doing this for decades and know so much more than me than in different dimensions that I've never experienced myself in general. So I I do think there are more problems in healthcare to be solved overall for us as a society. And I strongly believe that having all of those ideas at the table can only help us win. And you know, we as an industry are here to develop better medicines for patients. So from that perspective, having All approaches on the table, whether it's venture capital, incubated, founder led, seasoned executive led, we should do them all. I think that's what's best for patients.
1: Amazing. Curious if you all could comment on culture and how to build a strong culture, especially when what's perhaps needed in a discovery stage startup is very different than what might exist in, say, a more established pharmaceutical company where you do want to pull some expertise from, for instance.
4: Culture is the heartbeat of any organization. That is absolutely true for biotech and our industry. And I've spent a lot of time on that aspect. You know, especially given that we're an anomaly in many ways. We're founded by three physicists. We have two women founders of color. We are building new technologies for cell and gene therapy, which is also an emerging and exciting industry. Everything's very new. So we take culture to heart. And one of the things we've prioritized very actively is our efforts around communication. There are a lot of things that go well in startups, and a lot of things that don't go well. And the only way to get great things done and also solve problems is to be able to communicate. And for us, it's been high priority from the beginning, especially because we have so many disciplines also interfacing. So you have the physicists with the stem cell biologists, with the machine learning engineers, everybody's speaking a different technical language. We are actively working to bring everybody together. I do think it's important to make sure that all voices are heard, regardless of what level they're coming from within the company. Our interns have sometimes brought the best ideas to the table that were amazing. We have a full time leadership coach in house to work with the scientists and engineers on their leadership growth trajectories or have transformative leadership. I think the three areas that I've been highlighting in all of my CEO welcome sessions have been growth mindset, emotional intelligence, and low ego. That's what we really need to prioritize as we're transitioning and scaling up the team. And you know, We were 10 people for a long time, and this year we're getting into you know above 50. So in this rapid pace of growth where you have a massive influx of a lot of industry experts, just very important for us to always pay attention to the science and let the evidence dictate which direction we take the company in. So culture is really important. And just a little bit about my background. I didn't mention this in the intro, but I spent my childhood living in different countries with my parents. So Saudi Arabia, Bangladesh, Germany, Sri Lanka. So this idea around communication and community building and how to engage across different cultural backgrounds is something that I just have always done pretty naturally. And that's paid off big time in At Salino.
5: So I, I tell people this and I actually mean it. Making a drug is, is actually almost as hard as building a company that people are so wildly excited about they couldn't imagine working somewhere else. I, I actually believe that it may be harder to do that um, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I think if you put culture first, it, where it really shows up, by the way, is when your company goes through hard times. When things are going really well, it's actually really easy to not see the rocks when the tide goes down. So the benefits of culture really come up when you need people to step up. Honestly, that's where I've seen it show up in its strongest point. And I agree, there's a lot of other benefits too. And, and you get good ideas. The other thing I'd say is it's virtues, not values, is what we talk about. And the reason I talk about that values are something that, you know, it's something that's important to you. Virtues are how you act and operate. And that's culture, right? Culture is what you do. And I actually think as a CEO and any CEO, you need to be very deliberate and understand yourself and be self-aware about what it is and who you are and what's important to you. Because I think, and I look, I've learned this on my own over the past five years of doing this. When you try and be something you're not, when you read something in a book, it's okay to try different things, experiment different things. But if you sort of put something out that you think is going to help your culture, but it's not embedded in your DNA and you don't operate that way, you're not going to get people to follow you. And so you might decide you want, as an example, you want to have a certain type of culture, a certain type of openness and collaboration. But if you as a CEO are more of an introvert and you don't collaborate that way and whatnot, that's just not going to work. You have to be very clear on sort of what it is that's important to you and then also recognize what's important to people and kind of design around that, right? And you can experiment with different things, but you can't get away from the DNA of, at the end of the day, you are the CEO and people will follow you and that's important. And so, you know, to be totally transparent, I've definitely made mistakes along the way in terms of either not knowing and kind of realizing afterwards, sort of inspired to be something that wasn't me and realizing that that's hard to have authenticity behind or sort of trying something and that's okay and sort of shifting. So we do that all the time. And so, you know, our culture really is, and and this is a large part for me too, high science, transparency, and collaboration. right. Those are the three things about us. And you got to pull those things. When we were going through sort of, let's call it a, a shift for the company from small molecules to ASOs and you know, we had a certain amount of money left and we had to do a lot of difficult things. We were very transparent with people. We, I told everybody exactly what was going on. We had 42 people. We didn't lose a single person during the entire time. And this is at a time when everybody was jumping ship to go to other companies, right? It was the frothiest time in biotech. And I think that if you were to I email people at least twice a year and ask them, describe our culture in one to two sentences, right? What do you think it is? You know, and we ask like six simple questions. And that's really a good test. If you think you've got a great culture, go ahead and ask your employees to describe it in one or two sentences and you'll see how clear your culture is. And we work on that, right? We ask every year and we try and understand what people are saying. And we're either embracing that, like, you know what, this is what people are saying. Let's bring that into our virtues. Let's uphold that. Or people are missing something we think is important. Why is that? So I think that you know culture eats a strategy for breakfast in terms of... And what I mean by that is when things are hard, when we need people to band together. We've seen that time and time again at this company. And you know, just to describe what else we do here. So then the question is how do you reinforce those virtues right and so benefits uh compensation wellness days we've instituted at camp four we have a completely hybrid environment now well, everybody's like well do you have two days a week three days a week we don't have anything we let people come in when they want by the way we've designed camp four in a way where it's very open but we create hives if you will sort of separate spaces so people collide and bump into each other and interact. Generally speaking, we have more than 50% of the company. And on any given day, people want to be here. You know, we cater lunches for them. Lunch is the key for everything, right? Um, People love that. But we have mentoring. we ask our board members to mentor. We ask our more senior people to mentor. I walk through the lab at least once a week to go ask people how they're doing. Guess what? You want to learn what's going on? Don't set up a one-on-one. Go up to somebody, just start talking to them, right? That's the easiest thing in the world to do. And you'll actually really understand what's going on. And we take every chance we get to tell people what's going on. After every board meeting, we sit down, we do town halls, we answer questions, we do sessions on how do you think about your equity? What's the value of it? Why should you care about it? We try and keep lots of people I find don't necessarily want to be in the lab firm. They want to shift into other roles. We take opportunities to do those things. So we try and reinforce high science, transparency, collaboration at every turn, because that's the kind of company we want to be and are inspired to be. And you know that's kind of my view on culture and what it is. It's actions. It's upholding it. And it's reinforcing and it's listening to people as well and bringing that into your fabric as you go along.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things I'm reminded by is a lecture that Jeff Lawson, who founded and runs a company called Twilio, which is a $20 billion sort of software company at this point. He once said that culture and values are merely an articulation of who you are, as opposed to something that's pulled out of thin air that you aspire to be. And that was like a very interesting... Revelation, I think, for me and my co founders from the various companies I've been with, which is we should be trying to articulate who we are and ensure that we're serving as a lighthouse for other people who have similar attributes, at least in the positive ones, hopefully. So, you know, with that, you know, this whole concept of culture and values is something that, to be honest, you know, we don't talk too much about, at least in the biotech industry. I think it's more heavily trafficked in the tech world uh, and elsewhere. But beyond that, would love to hear any advice you will both have for early stage entrepreneurs or first-time founders, you know, especially when it comes to not only team building and culture, but also your your management style and even pitching, right? Especially if you have a scientific background.
4: Yes, totally. You know, I, I do think it's a journey and a learning process we have to go through as scientists who are becoming entrepreneurs for the first time, because you literally in your PhD are trained to present your science and ideas in a very different way than what's uh, expected for for the CEO role, and especially for fundraising. I do feel that uh, with Celino, we do great science. We have a great team. There's always great data when you look at the data. But for me last year and the series A in particular was all about storytelling. It was about vision. Imagine a future where everything is going to be autonomously manufactured. You're going to walk into these rooms and warehouses full of systems that look like servers in a server room, but you're going to be manufacturing human cells in those systems. And it's going to be completely autonomous. That type of next level vision creation, and I think even embracing it is definitely A journey (laughs) and it doesn't come naturally. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to be mentoring several amazing scientists, engineers who are pursuing different startup ideas. And I get a lot of people reaching out to me. And I'm always saying, please leave your scientist hat at the door. You need to throw away that inventor bias. It's not about your science. It's not about what's interesting about the science, about what problem are you solving and what's your business model, all the things that are important for your technology to become a successful company and it's it's a completely different way of viewing the world so i do think that's something i wish there was more training in in academic settings that would be really powerful it's all about training and experience i do think that's changing right now and at many institutions i'm really excited and there's some really good programs like nucleate that allow scientists to have access to a lot of resources and mentors and i did a lot of things like mass challenge and mass connect back in the day in the Cambridge, Boston area, which were super, super helpful. Absolutely. I do think it's important to be very clear that as you step into your founder role, it's a different role. You can also be a scientific founder and then your role is different and you will have to train different muscle sets. But for the CEO role in particular, I do think storytelling is so important. And the other part of it is sharing your own story. I think in science, we're a lot of times trained to never talk about How we're feeling, what our motivations are, what our personal stories are, because it's always mostly about the science. But I do feel company building is so much more than that. And yeah, that's something I've had to channel and grow into. And I'm still growing and growing outside my comfort zones, I think is important.
5: Well, look, let me cabbage off that and just agree right off the bat. I think storytelling is one of the most important skill sets here. And so I think, you know, we're all constantly working on that. I, I encourage everybody beyond CEOs to work. I mean, it's just, it's so important. It really is. I actually think it's kind of a little bit important to be a little nervous as a CEO. And your job is to be looking ahead and figuring out what's coming. And because there's so many moving pieces here. And if you let your guard down and you get too comfortable with things, this is a really hard industry. Right? Making drugs is hard. And there's always different turns coming in different directions, whether it's people, investors, the FDA, you know, science experiments, et cetera. So you just got to be uncomfortable. You got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, really. Um, doesn't mean don't appreciate the highs. Take a moment. But like, candidly, I found that there's more low points or hard points than there are high points in this. And that's OK. That's not to say this job doesn't, you know, have its... I think really important points to it. And I actually think it's more, I use the word satisfying. I feel like I learned something each and every week. I've been doing this for five years and, I, and the people I talk to who've been doing it for 20 years are still learning things too. So that just goes to show you, I think you never really have it fully figured out and you just have to embrace that and enjoy that ride. Right, And it's not always fun, but it's really satisfying and it's really fun to work with people and watch them excel and build things and, and really towards denting the universe and making a, a difference. So I think that's good. The only other two things I'd add is, look, you got to be vulnerable, right? It's hard to be vulnerable. What's hard about it is you got to be vulnerable with your people in the right ways. And you got to be a different type of vulnerable with your board and a different type of vulnerable with investors. Really, I, sat and I found that to be the case. So it's pretty dynamic, but it's also really, really important to tell people when you don't know the answer, you're just guessing, or you know maybe you're wrong, or I, I've just found time and time again, that is such an important part of this role. I always joke with people, the most inefficient part of this company is me by far, because I'm sort of slowly trying to learn everything and keep up with everything. But I'd say that's really important. And then the last thing I'd say is surround yourself with as much experience as you can get. I've benefited from that by having been at these bigger companies and have people, but obviously, you know, there's an ecosystem where people want to give back and that stuff just shows up in all different types of ways. So the more you can surround yourself with experience, the better it's going to be. The biggest risk that I heard when I wanted to take this role, by the way, I asked a lot of people, what do you think? A lot of people that I looked up to, what they said to me was they're really worried because I I had a career that went really well. And I think a lot of these founders coming out of PhD programs also have that, by the way, where they've excelled in undergrad, lots of them. They've excelled in PhD programs. They've not known what failure looks like. And I can say that because I didn't know what failure looks like. But when you're staring down the throat of failure and you've never had that before, there's mentally you're like, Oh my God. And it's just this very, very new feeling. And if you don't have the right mentorship or any, the right support system, the right, that's where I think it's very, very hard for people that haven't experienced that yet. So I really, really encourage them to think about that and think about how you prepare yourself for those moments because they are going to come. They come for all of us. And like that's okay. That's you know what makes it bitter, you know, sweet at the end is those hard moments, but they will come in this industry. And so being prepared for that is is really such an important thing.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that everyone's comments really uh, highlight the emotional aspects of running a company that I don't think anyone ever kind of tells you about, right? And it's aspects that extend from HR, right, bringing in that amazing exec or trying to retain that critical IC, right, on the team, to staring down the barrel of running out of cash. In that context, any pieces of advice or any practices you found to work well when it comes to handling those highs and lows as the CEO?
5: Unfortunately, alcohol and other things are not the answer. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's actually a couple of things. And let, let's see if my partner over here agrees on this, that part of it is just as you grow in these roles and you, it's like a threshold, you, you live through hard things and you realize, wow, okay, I made it through that. Right. And you sort of, your pain threshold changes and that's, you know, one piece of it. And I think you know, so you just naturally through experience, I think grow, everybody does. And that's a good thing. What I have found is, you know, finding outlets to share either frustrations or commiserate or talk about good things with people that can actually relate. So what am I talking about? Other CEOs getting together, whether it's a CEO group or networking, however you want to do it is hugely helpful whenever we do it, it's just like this moment. It's therapeutic, right? You realize I'm not crazy, right? Oh, investors don't write back to you either. Okay. It's not just me. I've been ghosted and like I'm not the only one. And you, know, you just realize it's not personal, actually. That's a big part of it, right? Taking the personal out. I think as part of the CEO role too, everybody around you can get very emotional, board members, others. You can't really do that, right? People are looking to you to be stable. That's really hard. And so you know, it's hard to bring it home to your families as well. So it, I think not just CEOs, but building mentorship relationships. I'll go back to that. I have a whole fleet of people that I I owe them so much because, you know, different people help with different things. But many times through this journey, I've called different people and I go on runs with Peter Hack, right? Peter's a great advisor. We go on runs, we talk about things like that's fantastic. Like Steve Holtzman, we brought up before, you know, Steve is so great to talk to because he's lived through so much, right? I can commiserate him. Then I have just, you know, people that are colleagues who are in other CEO roles and, you know, we share highs and lows. So, I think that's that's a big part of it in terms of the growing. And then the last thing I'll say, and I'm sure a lot of us do this, you know, I have a coach. Coach is code for a therapist, I think. You know, that's important. And I have my coach every year go out and talk to my team and board members, and that's hard. You put yourself on the pedestal, give me the feedback, let me hear it. Yeah, they always say positive things, but you go to the negative things. Okay, what do I need to work on? I think the evolution and really focusing on yourself and thinking about the emotional parts of it and learning different outlets. Those things actually, I think, really help create a balance and help you grow as a person and really be the leader you want to be. And we all kind of want to be with our people. Nobody wants to be the person running around screaming at everybody. So I, I think that's that's part of it as well, because we all get stressed.
4: What a lovely, holistic response from Josh. Love it. Yes, totally agreed. Coach plus therapist plus multiple coaches plus multiple therapists. All fair game for you know the intensity of the CEO role. I'd love to reflect on some lifestyle changes and choices I'm actively trying to work on, which is, of course, the mental health, very important. We already touched on that, but also the physical health piece. Sometimes always, a lot of times falls to becoming an afterthought, but really, you know, eating healthy, getting good sleep at night as much as possible. I've developed a great sort of workout routine for myself. And this was during the pandemic, actually, because I didn't have to go to the gym. So I figured out alternatives. And that was amazing to figure out how to take care of myself holistically. Taking vacation, very important. I try to lead by example to encourage my team to do the same. So staying off of slack as much as possible. I think it's important to disconnect, refresh. So you come back with a new perspective. You come back energized. Josh was very humble and honest about talking about moments where you're you're really facing failure and it's, it's really hard. And for me, I think that that time really was when the pandemic hit because I was looking at our bank account draining very quickly because we were supposed to go out and raise that March. So JP Morgan set up lots of friendly discussions and then we're supposed to go out and raise in March. And then the pandemic hit and everything came to a standstill. The wor- world was frozen. And I really had to take a hard look in the mirror and tell myself, "This is it. There's a pandemic. we're working from home. The world is ending, possibly, but I need to do whatever I need to do to keep this company alive, and it's going to be a true testament, and I don't know if it's going to happen. I had a pretty you know serious discussion with my team and just telling them, "Here's my strategy, and I think to go back to the original question, like how do you respond to a situation like that? I definitely fall back on planning, reaching out to all of my mentors and advisors, lots of late night calls, weekend hangout, just like Josh described. And then you really start to figure out what the possibilities are. And one thing that's really important to keep in mind, that's really hard. One of the hardest parts of the CEO job is you have to come up with new pathways and open new doors that don't exist. And that's completely on me and us. And that's our responsibility to our company. That's what we have to do. So really intense times and that instance, I just didn't know if Selena would make it through the pandemic and we would exist as a company. That was just a reality. And I was very grateful that we came out on the other side, but you know, I did all sorts of things like right, PPP loans, and, and then we paid it back when we were at Star Venture Capital Financing. So those intense moments happen. And I think in that time, very important to take care of health well-being. I think families pay a huge price entrepreneur families and our families being there to support us through all the ups and downs. So just telling them that we love them and we appreciate them.
1: Well, you know, I think that's really important, I think, for the, the broader audience, because uh, especially if you're a first time, those things are never written in a book or described in a podcast interview, except for here, except for here. They tend to be sort of kept close to the vest. So, you know, I really appreciate you all sort of sharing all your stories, as well as the advice you have for sort of the next generation. I hope that these sorts of conversations and venues serve as an opportunity for the portion of our audience that aspires to both build a company and achieve even a a modicum of success that you all have and can sort of look to you all as role models. I think that's one thing that certainly is lacking at the moment in the broader biotech industry is the ethos with which we should be helping sort of the next generation. And I'm really grateful for you all to sort of share both the ins and outs and the ups and downs, what it's like to build your companies. would love to have you all again on the podcast soon, maybe in say a year or two when the IPO markets start to thaw and you guys are going public. would love to hear what the roadshow is like and, and all that good stuff. How's that sound?
4: Sounds great. This was so much fun. Thank you.
1: Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.